yeah, uh, a big welcome to you all as we as we gather together this morning, and for those that are able to uh, join us on Zoom as well, it's great that you can uh, can participate with us. Um, yeah, it's great to be able to gather together to to worship God, to hear from His Word, to pray together, and to to sing uh, together, particularly during um, this season as we come up to Christmas. Um, with the, uh, I'm sure I'm sure Ian's question before of, of how is your week going and the, and the possible answer of busy was all, all the more likely at um, at this uh, at this time of the year. So yeah, it's great to be able to gather together. Um, and yeah, we're we're going to focus primarily on uh, the passage from the end of chapter 52 into 53 of Isaiah uh, this week. And this is your opportunity right now to get all of the colon earworms out of your head, okay? This is a colon-free zone moving forward. Sorry. You can, you, I mean, right now, you can do it right now. Um, so uh, let's, let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, uh, how amazing uh, is it that you have revealed yourself to us, you have given us your word. We pray that you would help us um, understand it this morning. We pray that you would help us um, be able to come to it with, with soft hearts, uh, to what is a, is a relatively familiar passage. Um, but we, we ask that um, you would, you would um, yeah, move our hearts and our minds to see the truths um, in this passage and the wonders of your uh, redemptive plan and purposes as um, yeah, all the more amazing and glorious this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing uh, a little Christmas series this week in the lead up to Christmas and um, continuing to see how God speaks to us uh, through his word. Uh, last week, uh, you remember we, we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and Matt took us through the, the problem of evil and we saw that the problem was brought about through uh, the bringing in of sin into the world, through the fall of Adam and Eve and um, evil is not something um, abstract or, or something that's out there different or separate from us but starts in our very hearts. It's a, it's a problem that is personal to, to each of us, to um, our us as individuals, as families, as, um, as societies, as cultures. Uh, and we saw the beginnings of how God might plan to deal with this problem. We saw the, um, the promise that, uh, that he made uh, that uh, the seed of, of Eve would be the serpent crusher. Um, and today we're going to see more about how his promises and how his redemptive plan start to crystallise, and particularly in this passage in Isaiah. Maybe this year, particularly around Christmas, uh, you feel the burden of this sin, of, of this evil. Um, despite, despite the marketing, despite what we see in the shops or on, or on the TV, Christmas can really be a time where people feel and experience this burden more acutely than other times. I know um, the, the, uh, the mental health unit and, and community mental health service at the hospital, for example, is always um, uh, under, understaffed and under-resourced at, at this time of the year because of the amount of, um, 
uh, yeah, just burden. People are feeling the amount of um, struggles that seem to come, come to a head at this time of the year. Does Christmas feel like a burden to you? All of the, uh, the events to go to, social commitments, trying to think of how to attain the ki- entertain the kids on the holidays, trying to think of what to buy the kids... Um, family tensions, you know, our, our family tensions and relationships can get exacerbated at Christmas as um, tradition might dictate that we spend more time than, than usual and in a concentrated period of time. Maybe at this time of the year you look back on the year with um, not a sense of, of joy or hope or, or positivity, but uh, maybe with a sense of failure or sadness that this year did not go how you wanted it to go. Christmas can certainly seem like a burden. But uh, I hope that as we look in this passage today, no, no matter how you feel about this burden, there's one thing that we can be clear about, that God has made a way for the burden of our sin to be dealt with. And that's what we'll see as we look through Isaiah this morning, focusing on these, uh, these chapters 52 and 53. At the end of our time today, I hope you'll see that we have reason to have hope this Christmas, knowing that God has made a way for the burden of our sin to be dealt with. And we're going to see this through three main points today as we look through the passage. Uh, Verse 13 of chapter 52 through to 53, verse 3, uh, that God will deal with our sin through a specific person. In verses 4 to 9 of chapter 53, that God will deal with our sin in a specific way. And in verses 10 to 12, that God will deal with our sin in specific history according to his promises. So in this first point, we'll see that God will deal with our sin through a specific person. And we see this uh, in verses 13 of chapter 52 through to chapter 53, verse 3. So I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open um, in front of you and follow along as we go through. And this is clear uh, from the very start. We, we know that Isaiah will tell us about a specific person. There in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Isaiah's prophecies are exactly that. They're prophecies. They're to be fulfilled in a specific event or events. And here we see that the event Isaiah is talking about revolves around a particular person, this servant. And what will this servant be like? Well, he will be one who acts wisely, certainly in contrast to the descriptions of Israel in the chapters leading up to this and throughout Isaiah. Uh, This servant shall be high, he shall be lifted up, he shall even be exalted. The title of servant suggests they will be one who is totally obedient to God. And yet, on the way to this exaltation, something unexpected uh, is already happening. There will be many astonished at him. His appearance will be marred, somehow beyond human form. The imagery suggests something like how a a writer at a similar time would describe somebody with leprosy, um, having a disfigured, unrecognisable form. And yet, as a Levite priest would sprinkle the unclean leper in ancient Israel and make them clean, so does this servant have the power to sprinkle many nations, there in verse 15. There is a global outpouring of cleansing happening here through this exalted servant. 
And this is to such a scale that kings, even kings of all people, will be silent in the face of this great work once they see and understand. Yet, the prophet breaks off at this point with somewhat of a, of a groan. Even though understanding of who this servant is and what they have done will cause amazement and awe, there will be many who do not understand, who do not believe. Even from birth, there will be nothing visibly special about this servant. Though they would come to cleanse the nations and be exalted, they will grow up with no outward distinction, no no good looks, no striking intellect, nothing that would um, cause them to stick out in the crowd or in the public square. They're, they're not really a somebody, they're more of a nobody. Even more so than being ordinary, they will actually identify with the broken and the rejected. Grief and sorrow will be familiar experiences for this exalted servant. Who could such a servant be? Who is this exalted, lifted up, disfigured, ordinary, rejected one? Of course, as we'll see as we travel further through this passage, we'll see that these words speak of the coming Messiah, the one looked for by the ancient Israelites to restore their nation, bringing them righteousness and victory over their enemies. The work described in this passage describes one who comes to save and restore God's people to right relationship with himself. And in doing so, this this passage rightly points us to the life and work of Jesus. And already, even just in these couple of verses, we can see the parallels. Jesus had a normal early life, not marked by any majesty or exception. Though some marvelled at his early teaching, many rejected him as as nobody worth following. We, we can see in chapter 12 of, of, uh, of the book of John, even um, John uses this passage to confirm that though Jesus had performed many signs and miracles, many still did not believe him. And thereby fulfilling the words of verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And Jesus is not just merely an exalted man, of course. He is the only Son of God, the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, of one substance with the Father, begotten from the Father before all ages, come to earth as the exalted servant of the Lord, marred, disfigured, growing up like a young plant, a root out of dry ground, despised and rejected by men. Now think about uh, for a second, what's your next step when you're faced with a problem that you need to solve? We live in in such an uh, information-saturated world that often, uh, I know for me, my first instinct when I'm uh, faced with a problem is to look for an article, look for a video in which I get good information and suggestions on how I can deal with the problem. This has been uh, my approach when figuring out how to go about rebuilding a retaining wall on one side of our yard. I started with the Bunnings articles, then moved to YouTube. Then all of a sudden I'm waist deep in technical specification sheets from Timber Queensland, wondering how I got there. The amount of, the amount of information uh, is endless. But friends, God has promised that he will deal with the problem of sin and evil in the world, not through an information exchange, but through himself. 
we don't find good advice in this passage in Isaiah, do we? We find the words, behold, my servant. We don't find a new political system or self-help manual or merely an inspiring story. God is going to, going to deal with sin through the exalted servant of the Lord. Yes, Jesus Christ himself. This means for you and for me that, that we are not called to continue trying to solve the problem of sin through our own means, trying to get to the bottom of the problem and working out a solution ourselves. God has promised that he will do it and he will do it himself. So we've seen in, in this section from uh, the end of chapter 52 there through into the first few verses of chapter 53 that God will deal with our sin through a specific person, namely the servant of the Lord himself, and that he is the one who has, who has identified himself with us. So this is good news for us. But not only do we see the who of God's plan to deal with sin, but we see here also that God has planned a specific way for our sin to be dealt with. Uh, which brings us into our second point, that we will see that God will deal with our sin in a specific way. So we might say, okay, we've seen uh, who God will use to deal uh, with our sin, but how will this be accomplished? What could possibly um, satisfy, yeah, satisfy the wrath of a righteous and holy God? We can see this laid out for us in verse 4 through to verse 9 of chapter 53. I'll read that for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This servant is not not only acquainted with grief, but has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The servant seems to receive a judgment and punishment, but not because he is the one, um, not because he is the owed recipient of that judgment, but because he is taking judgment that others deserve. He is pierced for our transgressions, for he was crushed for our iniquities. Even though those around him consider him chastised and smitten by God, he had done no violence there in verse 9. There was no deceit in his mouth. He is purely innocent, having not done any wrong yet, is taking on the violent judgment that the people deserve for their deceit. And the reason for this judgment uh, is clear there in in verse 5. All have transgressed. All have turned away from God in verse 6. Instead of following the ways of the Lord, instead of walking his paths, we decided to follow our own desires and ways, each one of us. 
Uh, this passage is clear again about where the problem of evil lies. Uh, it lies in us all, it lies in each one of us, like sheep who have wandered from the flock, walking blindly through the hills, through the scrub, with the conviction that we should follow our hearts in today's language, yet have forsaken our true shepherd. course you might have um, picked up the the links there the dots joined with the um, the story given for the kids earlier this passage in Isaiah is one of the clearest examples in the Old Testament of foreshadowing the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as he offered himself up in our place he was pierced he was crushed a way that we can describe or, or terms that we can use to describe this work of Christ is penal substitutionary atonement So walking back through those three terms, uh, this work is an atonement, that is, it is reuniting us with God, where previously we were alienated, enemies of God. Uh, In this passage, we see that though we had transgressed and had turned away through the work of this servant, we are given peace there in verse 5, peace ultimately with God, reconciliation with him. This work is substitutionary, that is, Christ is a substitute taking the place of sinners. Of course, this is all through chapter 53 of Isaiah. Our griefs and sorrows are borne by him. He is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Christ is taking the place of sinners. He is standing in their place. He is their substitute. And the work is penal. The thing that Christ is receiving in our place is the penalty or punishment that we deserve for our sin, even bearing the sin itself. He is pierced for transgressions. He is chastised. He is cut off from the people. And our iniquity is laid on him. Here's how Paul puts this in Romans uh, chapter 3 from verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has put forward his one and only son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation, meaning an appeasement or averting of God's wrath so that all who have faith in him are justified. They're declared righteous. They're, they're reunited with God. Uh, and this really is the foundation of how we are saved in Christ and given peace with God through him. Not only has God said that he will deal with our sin, but has promised to deal with it by taking up the very sin that has alienated us from God, taking on the punishment for that sin on our behalf. Who does this apply to? All of us. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, This is made clear throughout the rest of Isaiah. The God of Israel is the Holy One, 
the perfect, righteous, holy God. He is the one who cannot tolerate sin. He cannot simply allow sinners into his president. Allow sinners into his presence. So how will his promises to his people be realized? It's through the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus on the cross, taking the wrath of God in our place. This uh, burden imagery of Isaiah 53 is striking and uh, it's, it's hard to find a way to, to illustrate this, to find uh, a way of understanding this, the, just the magnitude. But the picture that this brings to mind is um, going on uh, a really long hike through the bush whilst trying to carry a ridiculous weight. Imagine hiking a long hike and every 100 metres your pack gets heavier and heavier to the point where it's doubling its weight each time. Imagine trying to carry hundreds of kilograms on your shoulders to get to your destination. It's impossible. You are incapable of doing it to the point where you can't even pull yourself out from underneath the weight that you're carrying. Sure, there are others. Others might be around, others might be on the track, but they're carrying the same weight. They're unable to carry their own burden, let alone yours. You need someone who is there on the path, able to walk with you, able to take your pack, take your burden. And who else could do this but God himself? Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is God's answer to the problem of evil. Not advice, not information, but good news, that he himself will bear the problem for us. So we've seen from uh, these verses, verses 4 to 9 of chapter 53, that God will deal with our sin in a specific way. That God had a specific plan that was needed for him to maintain his sovereignty, his justice and his mercy. We've been able to see that God has planned to deal with the problem of sin through a specific person in a specific way. And we can see across the whole story of scripture that this is according to God's promises from the beginning, as we'll see uh, in our next point. God has promised throughout history to deal with our sin at a specific time in history. By a specific time, I don't mean that from this passage we can figure out uh, any prediction on exactly when God would come to deal with our, with our sin and line it up with when Jesus was on earth. I mean, that this promises, I mean that this promise is to be filled within history at a specific time as a historically verifiable event. Uh, whilst reading this passage, uh, the timing may not be uh, clear to us. It is important that the atoning work of Christ is a real historical event. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. We can see this point uh, in verses 10 through to 12 of chapter 53, uh, with a particular emphasis on verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was the will of the Lord to crush this servant. 
The work of the servant of the Lord is not something to be merely marvelled at as though it was a mysterious chance alignment of lots of different circumstances that all aligned, that enabled Christ to do this work. Uh, This is not a remarkable person that came to the right place at the right time. No, it is the very will of God, the Holy One who is unchanging from before time began. It is His will and plan that though His people wander from Him, His servant will come to deal with the sins of the people, standing in their place. And this has always been the plan of God. It has always been the way that He will fulfill His promises to His people and His kingdom purposes. And we see this Uh, reflected throughout the Old Testament as well. Isaiah 53 is not just an obscure standalone passage that points to the coming of Christ, but all of God's Word traces His redemptive plan. It all points to the one who would come to bear the sin and guilt of His people. Uh, Writing about this, um, Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher in the 17th century, put it like this, If one man alone had made a book of predictions about Jesus Christ as to the time and the manner in Jesus Christ had come in conformity to these prophecies, this fact would have infinite weight. But there is much more here. Here is a a succession of men during 4,000 years who consequently and without variation come one after another to foretell this same event. Here is a whole people who announce it and who have existed for 4,000 years in order to give corporate testimony of of the assurances that they have and from which they cannot be delivered by whatever threats and persecutions people may make against them. This is far more important. To flesh this out a little bit, we saw the beginnings of this in... Genesis last week that we looked at, the beginnings of this promise, the beginnings of this redemptive story. When in the garden after Adam and Eve sin, there is the promise given to them that an offspring will crush the head of the serpent. There will be someone who will come to defeat sin and evil. And this promise begins to take shape over the rest of the Old Testament. And we can briefly touch on a few examples. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 2, for example, the mother of Samuel, Hannah, prays that the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This promise of a coming king uh, is taking shape. And though David is the king that unites God's people and how all kings are measured after him, he cannot ultimately defeat Israel's enemies. And after his reign, the people of Israel fall back into sin and the nation deteriorates. If we move forward through into Jeremiah chapter 33, it anticipates that there is something more to this coming king. It reads, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to make sacrifices forever. And these promises seem to gel together, not just a restoration of the kingly and priestly lines, but someone who will sit on the throne and be a priest forever. And of course, there's, there's so much more that we could get uh, into, but we move forward into the New Testament and the very start of the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Uh, and Jesus is explicitly identified as this coming king through the line of David. 
He is the branch of David, the one who will come to redeem God's people. If we think about this for a second, that Jesus of Nazareth, the most influential person to have walked this earth, no matter what uh, your opinion or, or evaluation might be of him, the most influential person to have walked the earth seems to have been anticipated. If you were to take Isaiah 53, the chapter we've read, and, and taken it down to the main street of Toowoomba and read it uh, to people down there and asked, who, who do you think this is talking about? What do you think that will say? I would think that no matter their religious or spiritual backgrounds, most people will be answering Jesus to that question. Peter Kreef writes, if you were to calculate the probability of any one person fulfilling sheerly by chance all the Old Testament messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it would be as astronomical as, as winning the lottery every day for a century. Even if Jesus deliberately tried to, to fulfill the prophecies, no mere man could have the power to arrange the time, place, events and circumstances of, of his birth or of events after his death. No, this is not mere chance. It is the will of the Lord. His strength and sovereignty are in this. The work of his servant will not fail. It will not be vain, but he will be exalted. He will be lifted up. God's promise to us is that it is by his will, his might and his suffering that his servant will come and deal with our sin in history. In Micah, as well in the Old Testament, we read about this coming king. But you, O Bethlehem, Aphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. As we approach Christmas this year, what burdens do you carry? What ways do you see sin uh, in your own heart, in those around you or in our city? Our culture would have us brush these aside uh, for the shallow happiness and cheer this Christmas. But Christmas is a time for burdens. It is a time to yearn for the one who is to come. As we look back on the servant who came and how all the promises of God began to crystallize with God's servants, the very Son of God, who came to carry our burdens. He, he came to deal with our sin and to stand in our place. So let's pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made a way for our sin to be dealt with. Lord God, your wisdom and your sovereignty uh, is, is astounding. Your plans and promises are perfect and nothing can thwart them. We confess how we have followed our own ways. We've forsaken our Heavenly Father. We've looked to things of this world or things inside ourselves instead of looking to you, God. We give you thanks that because of Jesus, we can be justified, reconciled to you, God. We pray that you would help us this Christmas to know the hope and joy that you have promised and to look to Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.